Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. And I've got something pretty neat here, actually. I've got Hipster Hadrian stickers, which I'm pretty happy with. They're waterproof, they're vinyl, I'm selling them at cost. So they're a buck, and you can order them on the website, just like you can order the regular stickers. And all you need to do is go to the website, thebritishhistorypodcast.com, and follow the instructions on there, and just specify that you'd like a Hipster Hadrian sticker, and I'll send them right out to you. Anyway, history. So today we start with a death. Whitgar, brother of beloved stuff, warrior, conqueror of Chertis's Ore, and ruler of the Isle of Wight, died in 554. Or did he? There's a funny thing about dying. You have to be alive first. And there's an argument that Whitgar might have been a mythical character that was created after the fact to establish a ruling dynasty for the Witwara, the men of Wight. It's something we may never know for certain, and honestly, it's a bit of a microcosm for everything you have to deal with when studying this era, because really you don't know much of anything for certain. But at least according to the Chronicle, Whitgar died, and presumably someone took over. Maybe it was stuff. Maybe Whitgar had some kids. Or maybe it went to someone else. We can't really be sure because the rulers of White are left unmentioned for over a hundred years following Whitgar. And while extreme longevity is quite unlikely, I like the idea that the entire period was filled by stuff. So that's what's going on in the far south. Stuff. But largely unknown stuff. What about up north? Well, three years later, in 547, King Ida became the first king of Bernicia. Now, Bernicia was rather important and was one of the two kingdoms that would eventually merge and form the powerful kingdom of Northumbria. So that's pretty cool. Now, as you probably guessed, we don't know a lot about Ida, but it seems like he was a mover and shaker. We also know that he established Bamber as his capital. Now, Bamber was a fort in the area that could well have functioned as the center of a prior British kingdom. Sometimes it's been called the Old North. Though now, Bamber was obviously functioning as the capital of Ida's kingdom of Bernicia. So, like with much of this period, it raises questions, doesn't it? What happened to the people of the British kingdom? Were they pushed out? Were they integrated? Was there a shift in population or simply a shift in ruling dynasties? There are arguments that Bernicia is a Germanic spin on the old name of the British kingdom that preceded it. So could this be an appropriation of Germanic culture within the existing British kingdom? Or maybe just a Germanic dynasty ousting a British one? And here's something to think about when you think about the cultural shifts and changing dynasties of this period. Rome didn't wipe out the Celts when they invaded. And when you had Celts changing culturally into the Romano-British, it didn't reflect a complete ousting or genocide. However, there are a couple incidences that function as exceptions, and those involve a couple governors who have been thoroughly maligned in this podcast. But in general, people switched cultures and just stuck around. They weren't wiped out. So could that have happened in the 400s and 500s? Ultimately, we don't know exactly what was going on up in Bernicia, or in many other places from this period, but it is fun to ponder over. Anyway, meanwhile, back down in the south, things weren't all peachy either. You'll recall that Chinnerich had taken over the rule of the West Saxons after the death of Churdich. Well, it looks like the Brits were still a little bit rowdy, or maybe the West Saxons wanted more land. But whatever the cause, violence once again sparked up in the south, and Chinnerich fought the Brits at Sarum in 552. And then he and his son, a fellow by the name of Chalin, fought them again at 556 at Barenbury. And then... Four years later, Chinnerich died, and rule fell to Chalin. 
Now, it should be pointed out that primogeniture, meaning the succession of the eldest son, wasn't the universally accepted norm that it would eventually become. Others, if they were strong enough, could take control. But it seems like Chalin was the strongest, and that's reflected in the fact that he's one of the seven Bretwaldas mentioned by Bede. So here we are, 70 years after the death of the first Bretwalda, Alla, and now we have the second one. And we're going to hear some interesting stuff about Chalin soon. But basically what we're looking at here is that things are changing. And one of the clearest signs that we're starting to see is the development of hierarchies and ruling dynasties, both in the north and in the south. And we're starting to see the development of societies that reflect what Bede later wrote about. At least by the time of Bede, there were clear social differences between the peoples who inhabited what would become England. We know this because he quickly organized the people into three ethnic groups the Angles, the Saxons, and the Jutes. But as we spoke about in earlier episodes, it doesn't look like there were large organized tribal migrations of those groups, but rather sporadic and spotty settlements of families in small villages all over the place. And Bede also mentioned social hierarchies, yet, like we spoke about earlier, there didn't seem to be any serious political or military organization in those early days. But now we're starting to see signs of those. So what's happening here? How do we go from disorganized family groupings to distinct communities? I mean, both in terms of the podcast and in terms of years, it really wasn't too long ago that we were talking about individual families coming over and settling in a roughshod manner. And the Brits were doing pretty well at holding their own for a bit. But then we had a plague in a few years, and now we're finding ourselves in a whole new world. It's kind of crazy, right? So let's talk about what might have happened there. Well, on the most basic level, there's probably already something of a sense of communal groupings to begin with. The Germanic settlers moved in and integrated, or fought depending on the circumstances, but the important part is that the world wasn't unsettled or vacant. There were already communities present, and those communities had about 400 years of experience with being part of something larger than themselves. Not just Rome, but also little dioceses within Rome, and even sometimes their own province outside of Rome entirely but always part of a larger group, not just one or two families striking it out on their own. And like we spoke about last week, the cultural exchange didn't just go in one direction. It looks like the Brits influenced the settlers and vice versa. So while there was something of a return to smallness in the 5th century, the past might have clung on, and the people might have remembered when they were part of something larger. But you know, who knows? Now, you also have natural geographic aspects to the land, and those would make certain areas more likely to group together than others. And we're going to get into those as we go forward in future episodes. But to start with, I'd like to get a little deeper into the signs we have of this change, and what it reflects regarding the people, their status, and what developed in Eastern Britain during this time. After all, we're still dealing with a fallout of some of this today. So the most obvious place to look for these changes are in burials, which we've spoken a little bit about in earlier episodes. And we do see that the burials are gradually shifting from the styles of their grandparents to new novel forms, but it doesn't really give us a full picture of what was going on. We're staring at a very narrow window and trying to divine what's going on inside. But most of the story is hidden from us. Think about it this way. How much would a grave tell future generations about you? How much of your life can be understood from what you might be buried with? They wouldn't hear your use of slang, such as whatnot, nor would they hear your accent. They wouldn't know too much about your beliefs or religion, except for maybe the most basic level, like if you were buried with a cross. They wouldn't know much about how you interacted with people, whether you were a huge jerk or a bleeding heart, for example. 
they probably wouldn't even know about your hobbies. And as far as political beliefs, biases, pet peeves, fears, ambitions, virtually everything that makes you you, with the exception of your body and some of your clothes, are things that probably wouldn't end up in your grave. And you don't even get to decide what you're wearing. So it's a really narrow window that we're looking through here. Here's another example. If you had one person eating a barbecue pulled pork sandwich and another person eating a steak and kidney pie, you probably would immediately know which one was a Brit and which one was an American. But all those little subtleties, not to mention accents and things, like the fact that a Pacific Northwest accent tends to swallow D's and T's to the point where they're virtually indistinguishable in certain words, all of those things are incredibly hard to see when you're just looking at a grave. And oftentimes just flat out impossible to see. Even one that has a lot of grave goods. And don't forget that people can be part of a community, but also not have the same identity. Or have a variation on that community's culture. For example, I think everybody knows I live in Hipster Central. And in many ways, I fit right in here. I love Portland, and I could tell you for days about why Portland is the best place to live. However, nobody who knows me would describe me as a hipster, even though Portland is pretty damn hipster. So to paint all of Portland with a hipster brush would be a mistake. But that can be a risk that we run into when we look at archaeology. We see one burial and we wonder if that's indicative of the entire culture. And the thing about it is, people are complex, and their identities don't fit neatly into little boxes. Nor do they have a single role that they play. We're different things in different circumstances. Parents, children, siblings, spouses, friends, co-workers, we're complex. And the people that we're talking about were also complex. So it's something that we should keep in mind as we're going forward. We're trying to put together a puzzle here, but we're missing about 99% of the pieces. So that being said, we do see some interesting things in these graves. For example, like I mentioned a minute ago, we see a rise in novel funerary practices. What I mean by that is that the settlers came over, and they might have used the funeral practices of their homeland, and the locals might have been using the Romano-British methods. But within a short space of time, we're already seeing unique burials that don't look like either type. They're a completely new and distinct practice of their own. And that's probably coming about because the communities are mixing, and it's probably from the discovery or misunderstanding of each other's cultures. And during all of this, something interesting was probably happening as well. People of certain classes and roles, regardless of their cultural backgrounds, might have found that they had things in common based on their status and position in society, regardless of whether they were Germanic or British in origin. For example, if you are a poor Anglo-Saxon woman, you might find that you have more in common, at least in how you lived your life, with a British woman than you would with your own brothers. You both probably spent a lot of time bent over looms, you both were probably mothers at a young age, and you probably spent any remaining time tending to your children. And especially as we hit the 6th century, you both probably had less status than your brothers. In that regard, you can kind of imagine an Anglo-Saxon woman and a British woman sharing a knowing look over some shared frustration. And actually, that similarity might have served you pretty well, especially if your father decided to marry you off to the son of a prosperous family in a neighboring area. But of course, the similarities would only go so far. And so here we see how cultural spread and the development of a new culture might have began. In fact, we see evidence that hints at this sort of thing happening because most cemeteries from this period, we're talking about the 500s, well, most of them had one or two graves that contained women with jewelry that comes from another region. So many of them probably did marry in. Now, over time, we'll see a general homogenization of certain areas, but things were going pretty quickly, 
And according to Bede and supported by archaeology, we see evidence of regional cultures popping up. And here's something that was appearing at around this time that would have really helped us along. And actually, it's key to our stories of Cherdich, Ida, and others. Social stratification. Now this is huge. If you don't pay attention to social stratification, you really are only getting a tiny piece of the story. It's a big shift, and it's an important one. Now so far, I've been speaking about Anglo-Saxon settlements as being fairly egalitarian. But I should probably be a little bit more clear in what I'm saying. These settlements weren't truly equal where everyone had an equal share of both the work and the spoils. But rather, the early settlements were egalitarian in that there was room to move. The power structures weren't yet in place. There weren't any dynasties yet. I know, I know, Oisk and Cherdich are coming to mind, right? I mean, they were early rulers, and they founded the ruling dynasties of Kent and Wessex. Well, keep in mind that hindsight is pretty awesome, but things weren't set in stone at that point. Things could still change, and there just isn't much evidence for serious social stratification in the early migration period. For example, they weren't even bothering to bury their kids for quite a while, and even when there were burials, they often skipped the coffin. Let's be honest, this is not reflective of a society where there's enough spare resources to support a dynastic ruling class. But like we talked about at the start of the episode, we eventually ended up with ruling classes. And it's the ruling classes that really kick this regional cultural shift into high gear. So let's talk about how that might have happened, since really, it changes everything. And of course, a lot of it begins with the first arrival of settlers. At that point, we didn't see a lot of unequal allocation of resources, but we really shouldn't read too much into that. Simply because there wasn't a rigid system of haves versus have-nots doesn't mean that there weren't people in charge. I mean, it's possible there are exceptions, but I suspect there have always been some people who are more comfortable following than leading, and vice versa. My guess is that in those first few ships that arrived, you had people on board who were in charge, probably captains or heads of the family. And that was probably maintained once they got off the boat for a while as well. And once you had a full settlement, you probably had some families that took on more of a leadership role. Frankly, I suspect that Cherdich and his son were one of those families. And in a situation like that, they'd probably end up with a little more than the others. Maybe better plots of land, better equipment, and that sort of thing. Though, I don't think you need to be a captain of a ship of settlers in order to become a leader of a community. My guess is that there are any number of ways this could have happened. For example, in those early years, their settlements might not have been self-sufficient. It isn't like you can just plant a crop and suddenly everything's good to go. Tools, supplies, food in the case of a bad harvest, there are all sorts of things that settlers might have needed. For example, I doubt your settlement would have had a good smith at first. So what will you do if your tools break? Well, in that situation, you probably had some people who would travel across the channel to get whatever was needed. Access to continental goods could well put them in a favorable position and allow them to gather more wealth around them. After all, people would be in their debt. Also, not everyone came over at once. This was a gradual migration. And one of the things we've seen from other migrant communities is that it's always best to get in on the ground floor. In fact, that's generally true of life. But for the settlers, this was even more true. Sure, they took a bigger risk in coming over and setting up things first. And those first few years were probably pretty damn tough. But now they were there and established. They knew the lay of the land. They already had trade connections. They knew what crops worked and what didn't. They were familiar with neighboring villages. 
Not to mention they probably already had settled on the best available land. Basically, they were in a great position and the other settlers, who were probably family members who arrived on their urging, would be looking to them for guidance. Where should I build my homestead? What should I plant? When should I plant it? Who's that strange pale guy over there in a toga? All of these questions would need answers. And that could very quickly translate to a leadership position. But like I said earlier, that didn't mean that they were a sure bet for becoming a dynastic founder or even a wealthy family in the long term. This was an unstable period and they were just starting out. And to make things worse, this was an agrarian economy. In this situation, a bad harvest, some sort of livestock disease, or even an illness striking your family, well, none of that's entirely out of the question. And any one of those events could cause your downfall in the blink of an eye. And this wasn't just for individuals. It applies for villages too. Not all villages are created equal. And there were some that were doing better than others. And while we think of raids as leading to the collapse of the economic power of a community, all it would really take is a bad harvest or a particularly bad illness to completely crush one of these villages. If everybody's sick and you don't have enough labor, what are you going to do? You can't harvest. You're pretty much toast. And in those circumstances, there might have been others ready to take advantage and to add to their own power base. So over time, certain individuals had more of, well, they really had more of everything than the others. And you also had certain villages that commanded more wealth and power than other villages. And this stratification could have been reflected in a whole variety of ways. For example, today you could probably spot the difference in wealth between a blue-collar worker and a debutante with relative ease. And I'm sure you could do the same back then. Differences in attitude, word choice, accent, clothing, names. There are all sorts of ways that class could have been signaled among the growing Anglo-Saxon communities. But for us, we're primarily left with graves and buildings. And in those graves, we're seeing an ever-widening chasm between the wealthy and the rest of the community as we get into the 6th century. And one of the most important signs we see are that children's graves have returned, with grave goods and everything. And here's the really interesting and important part. We're seeing infants being buried with rather extravagant grave goods. Now, these babies were too young to have earned any renown on their own. They haven't done anything impressive for the community or gathered any power around them. They're babies. So why are they given such special attention? And more importantly, why am I spending so much time talking about children's graves? This is all a bit macabre and creepy, isn't it? Well, I'm telling you about it because this is actually really significant stuff. That's because we're getting to a point where wealth and power isn't just personal. In the early period, if you had impressive grave goods, it's probably because you're an impressive person. Though I should point out that if you didn't have nice grave goods, that doesn't necessarily mean that you weren't impressive. Some communities just didn't go in for that whole burying useful items thing. And also in the early days, meaning the 5th century, burial goods were just less common in Britain. I mean, in Anglo-Saxon areas, only about half of all adults were being buried with any sort of grave good. So about half the population had nothing. Not even a spear. Which begs the question... How do you get even with a Grim Reaper if your family was too cheap to even give you a spear? I guess it's just down to fisticuffs. Anyway, so in general, in the early days, you would only see really fancy grave goods, meaning more than just a spear or something along those lines, if you were an impressive person. But now we're finding these fancy infant burials. And that's evidence that we're hitting a point where it's not just the person who's impressive, but rather that person's lineage is impressive as well in its own right. 
So now importance flows, at least to a certain extent, from who your parents were. And that's how you end up with fancy grave goods in an infant's burial. And incidentally, that's also how you end up with dynasties. So that chasm is growing ever wider, and we have people who are getting more of everything, not because of any personal ability or value they provide the community, but rather simply on virtue of their birth. We're also seeing by the 6th century that the grave goods that indicate social status are increasingly found in the graves of men, rather than more equally between men and women. So we can infer from that that social standing and leadership roles are centralizing around the men. And this gulf between rich and poor and the gender-specific grave goods was really in full swing by the 6th century. You see it all along the settled portions of eastern England. And one place in particular where it was really obvious was Kent. Now traditionally, the ruling line of Kent is the Oiskengask, the descendants of Oisk. And Oisk was said to be the son of Hengist, though Hengist was said to be the descendant of Woden, so I'll leave you to decide what to believe and what to throw away. Anyway, Oisk and his successors were doing pretty well. And actually, so were the other upper-class members of Kentish society. In fact, they were doing so well that the wealthy Kentish graves contained Frankish goods, which suggests that the men of Kent were in contact with the Franks, which isn't surprising. That peninsula has long been used for trade, especially with what used to be Gaul. And they might have even had access to some of the industrial production that was left over by the Romans in Gaul. Of course, after the Romans had already pulled out and the Franks moved in. And this is going to be something that we get into next week when we're talking about the development of culture. But here we see the wealthy members of society starting to adopt Frankish customs, probably because they admired them and thought they seemed Roman, or at least fashionable. And in the north, influence from Norway appears to be causing some changes in style as well. But really, we're going to have to leave all that to the next episode since I'm running out of time. So now that we've talked about how we ended up with leaders like Ida and ruling dynasties, next time, let's talk about how that development helped lead us towards regional groupings and the ethnic communities that Bede later wrote about. Okay, as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join us at Facebook. And to do that, all you have to do is type in facebook.com slash British History and then click likes and you'll get updates. Now, if you're not into Facebook because you saw the social network and you've decided that you don't like Mark Zuckerberg, you can follow us on Twitter. Just search for at British Podcast. And if you're not into that whole social media thing, you can also join us on the forums. Just go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com, click Get Involved, and click Forums, and we'll see you over there. All right. Thanks for listening. <laughs>